The old adage, good people are hard to find, and almost invariably when you find someone who's talented and hardworking and smart, you know, they're not gonna let you go. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. We talk about the business of sports on all levels, from the grassroots to the intercollegiate to the pro level. We talk about innovation, leadership, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co-host, Tom Richardson, here in July. Tom, welcome back. Joseph, good to be with you. How's your extended lockdown going? We are socially distancing as best as we can and uh, hoping for the best. As uh, there was an interesting uh, little quote in the Times uh, this past week, we're right now in the middle of July, where it said a lot of the people who are um, struggling and, and maybe not doing everything that they could possibly be doing. It's like when you're 11 years old and you believe in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy, you're really hoping that you're going to hold out, but in reality, you know, it's not going to work out the way you want. And right. um, I think, you know, with some of the things that we've seen about coming back to school, which we'll talk about in a couple minutes at Columbia and, you know, Tom, you obviously have kids who are just out of college and uh, we're kind of all dealing with the same thing, but um, you know, hope and reality are, are two things. And there's a lot of things with leadership and um, making decisions, hard decisions that are for the best. And that's one thing we're about to talk about. Um, uh, and um, you know, so we're probably going to get into that more than a little bit. And obviously with all the other issues that are going on. One, one more point on a lighter note before we get into to, to the conversation with our fantastic guests. And that is, I think you and I both took, uh, smiled when we saw what might be a new low in the sport hiatus media environment when we tuned in in prime time, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, and in prime time on ESPN, the worldwide leader was an Eagles concert from a few yes. years ago. Actually, it's funny. So I actually <laughs> saw the Eagles with Duncan Fry and Vince Gill last Me too. Year. I saw them at MSG last. I think, yeah. you, I think you and I went to the exactly. same tour. Yeah, but exactly. The funny thing was being there, and this actually touches on a lot of the issues now, being there live, versus trying to watch that for four hours. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even close to being the same experience. Yeah, I mean, it was a good show, but I, I just, I had to go back and check the, the, the uh, with my remote control, like, am I on ESPN in prime time right now? It's like, is that what this has come to? I mean, um, thought it was a great idea too, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, look, it was a good, it was a good show. It was entertaining, not as good as in person, but it was entertaining, but well, we are ready. We are ready for some sports, baseball, yep a week from the day this is being recorded, July 16th. So July 23rd, there'll be two games, including the Yankees, mm -hmm. uh, which will be good. And then uh, I don't know what we're going to see in terms of football. We'll come to that in a minute. And then, and then we got a little bit of NBA coming up and uh, NHL and, and the continuation of the MLS. So anyway, bring it on. So one thing we may not be seeing much of this fall is, is intercollegiate sports. Um, and I was lucky enough to meet our guest, Greg Moore, almost a year ago, a little bit less than a year ago, uh, randomly in, um, at the, uh, the Sports Leaders Summit uh, that Sports Business Journal puts on in Orange County, California. Uh, and ironically, we really spent a lot of time together, not because of me, but because of my wife, who likes to talk to a lot of people. And Greg was standing there, and we were walking down to a dinner. And uh, my wife, Laura, struck up a conversation with Greg. And lo and behold, I find out that Greg Moore, the commissioner of the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference, which is the largest historically black conference in the country in terms of schools, um, went to high school with a good friend of mine who lives in my town. And that's how we struck up a conversation and we've stayed friends. And the things I've learned from Greg after his now almost 12 years in charge of the SEAC about how they've been a disruptive leader in engagement and have really tried to lift the, the, um, the profile of HBCU schools. And it's certainly something that's always been on my radar and I think it's underplayed. Um, but when you talk about leadership in the college in the college level, someone who I always think about first is Greg Moore. So Greg, welcome to the, the CUSP show. Thank you, Joe. And uh, how's your wife doing? Good, she's actually, if I look over my left shoulder, she's sitting outside in the sun. <laughs> okay, nice. well, give her my regards. You, 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 you're married up as they say. Yes. <laughs> so, Greg, why don't you talk us through uh, a little bit about the SEAC, but kind of your path to how you got to where you are. And I definitely want to get into some of the things that people might not know about. First, to stream, you know, you made a really hard decision right behind the Ivy League not to play this fall. Uh, and then some of the students that you have 
and the opportunities that exist at SEAC schools that you've tried to champion up that uh, more people need to know about, especially in the time we're in right now? Well, uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I'm originally from uh, New Jersey, born and raised, born in uh, Newark, New Jersey. I uh, went to college at the College of New Jersey, played basketball there when it was known as Trenton State College. Wasn't a good player, loved sports. And I quickly realized that, you know what, your, 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 your career in basketball is probably not, uh, you know, not going to be that, that extended. So I thought about, you know, how can I go continue to stay connected to sports? And uh, at that time, I, was, you know, I thought that law was a good, good path to pursue. Uh, I've always been kind of an avid reader. Joe and Tom, and, uh, and I read a lot of sports biographies, and I followed the business of sports even back then as a kid. And, you know, I, I just found like a common denominator uh, that a lot of sports, you know, leaders had from college commissioners, I mean, pro commissioners, David Stern, I think, uh, Paul Tagliabue, a lot of these agents, David Falk, they all had like uh, David Stern, they all had a uh, legal background. So I said, there must be something to this legal thing that uh, perhaps could serve you well if you wanted to stay close to, to the sports. And <clears throat> that led me to the University of Oregon. I uh, went back to Jersey, worked in the state legislature for a while, and then I pivoted to a, a minor league uh, basketball, NABA basketball league as, uh, as, as general counsel. Uh, two years of doing that, I was invited to apply to the position of commissioner of the SIEC, and I found it very intriguing because um, they had to, it was it was a it was an organization that was in trouble. They had about you know half roughly a half million dollars in revenue. They had about six hundred thousand dollars in liability. Uh, there was no money in the bank. Two schools on probation. Um, uh, they had lost over a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Three successive years, two hundred and thirty-seven thousand dollars a year before I got there. So, and this happened in you know this is in '08 when I was you know transitioning into uh, you know the, the league. So this is in the context of you know a financial crisis, you know not too dissimilar to to, to kind of the challenges that we're facing today. Um, but the, the, one of the things that intrigued me about the position was that they had led for 15 or 16 con consecutive years Division II in attendance. So despite all these financial challenges, it just seemed to me that you know it, it, it was incongruent that these schools had a very unique relationship with their alumni and their fans and also the, you know, the communities, you know, that they serve. And I felt there's gotta be something, there's gotta be something here. Um, that's worth, that's worth, uh, you know, investigating. So I took the job and, you know, uh, one of the first things I, I realized was that, Hey, we have almost 400,000 folks going to these games. But we're not, we don't have a real relationship with these folks. We, there's no way to kind of dialogue and engage them. So with the help of our board, uh, a council of presidents, they all kind of, we, we borrowed a page from, uh, from uh, MLB Advanced Media. I'm a, yeah, as I mentioned, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, and I came across a Harvard case study uh, that chronicled uh, MLB Advanced Media. And it, and it talked about how this, you know, the idea behind it, how you know Bob Bowman convinced these uh, league owners to, to hand over the keys to their websites, and they would aggregate, aggregate eyeballs and generate revenue, you know, from you know paid content, uh, advertising, ticketing, and merchandise. So I said, you know, maybe we can do the same thing. So we pretty much in 2010, I made a deal with our presidents and said, hey, listen, if you guys all get on the same platform. A small company named Sidearm Sports had about 30 schools, 30 clients. If you guys agree to be on the same platform, I'll help subsidize it so long as you guys agree to give us prime advertising um, real estate for, the, for, for our corporate partners. We did it, um, and we've been in that partnership with the uh, Sidearm Sports for the past 10 years. Uh, we've both grown as a byproduct of this relationship. They've gone from 30 schools uh, to 1,100 colleges, $10 million a year in revenue. We've tripled revenue, uh, erased all of our debt, 
increased corporate sponsorship by about 500%. Uh, head to toe deals with, you know, Nike, $5 million deal, first of its kind. Uh, and a lot of uh, Toyota, Coca Cola, uh, NBA Players Association, million dollar grant from USA Volleyball, first point ball, uh, volleyball foundation. And a lot of that really started with our investment in our relationships with our fans and our and our student athletes and really investing in social media. I will add that uh, the deal that we did with Sidearm, we were the first to do that kind of deal where all of our schools are on that same platform. Now that's become almost a model, um, the second league to do that with, with Sidearm, in fact, was uh, with the Pac-12 with Commissioner Larry Scott. So uh, we talked about this, Joe. You know, we, we, we've been – the old saying, necessity uh, is the mother of invention. Because we don't have a lot of resources and, uh, you know, we don't have, you know, multi-million dollar, billion dollar media rights agreement, we've had to be, you know, very creative and resourceful in, in the kind of strategies we're going we're gonna to take bets on and make bets on. And, you know, fortunately, you know, with the help of the good Lord, I am the son of a Baptist preacher. Um, you know, more of the bets have paid off than not. And we find ourselves now 10 years removed where, you know, we've added, you know, four schools, Savannah State, uh, Central State. We added the first predominantly uh, white institution, Spring Hill College in Mobile. Allen University just got approved for uh, provisional membership last week. We have Edward Waters that's seeking to apply in Jacksonville, Florida. So, you know, we've grown as a conference. Again, tripled revenues. The digital and social media footprint is the most significant in Division II. Uh, so I think we're, we're, we're pointed in the right direction. But I think we're well positioned to face the headwinds that, that, are, that are chasing college sports uh, and to get to the other side, uh, hopefully and confidently in, the, you know, in, one, in, in, in pretty good shape. Greg, before we talk about the challenges of today, uh, and I know Tom would be interested in this, uh, you were one of the first conferences to come up with a streaming deal, too, correct? And yeah, how, we were. How we did would, you come up with yeah. the idea, and how has it played out? Well, you know, we were in. We, it, it's played out pretty good. Um, we were. Um, we were uh, approached. By we were working with I don't know if you know Ray Katz right? Yeah, he's on the faculty. Ray Katz, with us. Yeah. yeah, Ray Katz and and, and, and Michael Shrek, they are uh, partners of ours with respect to their firm CSMG, mm -hmm. and uh, you know they Ray probably he knows more about media than probably anybody else I know in in college sports. He's really really good, and he will tell you and. That. He will tell you that. Yep, and uh, and, uh, and and tell him I said that so I can get a check right. in the mail. But right. but uh, but the, but the reality is that you know we were struggling as a small property because when I when I arrived at the SIC we had an ESPN deal, and then you know the networks, uh, then we kind of got pushed off of that platform, and then we went to a regional sports network, Comcast Sports South. Then when the you know these uh, these uh, leagues the, the Power Five leagues began to do their own network, that that inventory that kind of fed those regional sports networks in a way, and we went away with it. So we we we've been kind of like a gypsy looking for a a a, a right sized media partner that can accomplish two things: increase our our exposure. Uh, in terms of you know an increased number of events, but also do it in a way that's not cost prohibitive. And and we felt that the streaming platform was perfect. The other thing is this: uh, previously we were on you know the first screen, right? And we got to be honest, you know, I, I think more often than not on a Saturday afternoon, for example, our content is going to be second screen content. So we're going to have alumni, for example, in in, in Alabama who obviously are diehard Tuskegee and Miles fans. So they'll be, but they'll be watching the Alabama game on their giant screen TV, but they'll be watching our game on their, on their uh, iPad or on their phone. 
So with, our goal was to try to, you know, be your second screen option. Mm-hmm. And uh, we felt that streaming was 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 it was the best platform to help facilitate that. So it's it's worked out so far. Cause we went from having five games on to thirty games on. So if you're an alumni of you know any one of our schools, it used to be, you know, you had to you know maybe have one game on a year, if that. So now we almost guarantee all of our schools some uh, coverage in terms of uh, you know with our partnership with Flow Sports. Okay, so the platform you referred to, Greg, is Flow. It's Flow, and they and they yeah. they've been around. They're a startup. Yeah, yeah, we know that we know them pretty well. They've been around for a while. But, like for they've been around for a while yeah. though, so they're they're mm-hmm. they're 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 not exactly a legacy, you know, media company, but they're not exactly a startup either because they've been around for ten years. But right, I, I think they, I think the best way to characterize Flow is they were probably several years ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the industry is kind of caught up with the platform that they yeah. built out 10 years ago. One other quick question on that, because it's interesting when you think about the availability to do the streaming, um, it does have to emanate from the actual production of the game. So are your mm-hmm. schools using any of the new uh, technology to do more automated production, such as the technology from companies like Kizway or Huddle or anything like that. No, we we uh, we work with uh, we subcontract the uh, the production component okay. mm-hmm. to third party packagers. Okay. And they've they've done a pretty good job. You know, our yeah. sense is that if you you know you work with a couple and give them a a large uh, you know uh, uh, amount of games, it brings down the price point. Mm-hmm. So it's it made it's made the economics work. Uh, by going in that direction. Uh, but I will say we have had discussions about some of the artificial intelligence-driven automated camera systems, uh, you know, like Keymotion and Pixelot. We've had significant discussions with those guys. Um, but it, it, it's the price point, at least as of today, for those services would throw the economics of of the relationship with Flow and ESP out of whack, so we we probably be underwater. But I but I but at some point I, I'm I'm I recognize the fact that's where things are going to go. They have a phenomenal solution, both Key Motion and uh, and uh, Pixelot. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're very smart people. I think David Stern was an early investor yes. mm-hmm. in uh, Key Motion. Milt Lee is the CEO. Right. Doug Shapiro is the president of Key Motion US. They're smart guys. They're backed by a lot of smart money. Uh, they're gonna, you know, they, they, they're doing good things. It's, I just don't. I just think that, uh, you know, the 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 the, the, the smaller properties, we, we we haven't matured to the point where that uh, that's really a, a a real option as of now. But I, mm-hmm. I I see that I see things going in that direction soon, though. Yeah. Joe, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, actually, something that no. uh, we haven't, and we should get into the, the topic of today. But, Greg, what's your what's your view on name, image, and likeness, and how do you think that can play out for, for schools in the SEAC or just in general in college? Boy, you know, I, uh, it's probably long overdue, right? I mean, I was invited to testify. Um, before the state legislature of New Jersey that was, you know, has a bill, I think, still pending involving name and likeness. And I expressed some concerns uh, related to, you know, having, you know, 50 different kind of name and image and likeness, um, you know, uh, regimes as opposed to having one. But I think the general concept is it, it, it can be, it can be constructive. I will say I have some concerns with respect to the impact it can have on those schools and properties that don't have large media relationships. Mm-hmm. Because I think if you are a student athlete and say if you're at a Power Five league, a Power Five school, and you're on national TV every game, you know if you're at Duke, then obviously you're you're in a NIL right have a lot more value than if you're at an institution that doesn't have that kind of TV exposure. Mm-hmm. So the concern I do have is 
whether or not the NIL rules will have the unintended consequence of, of widening the gap between the has and the have not. Um, you know, you read recently that, uh, you know, uh, my core maker yep. turned down UCLA and I think it's Kentucky to, to assign with Howard University. I think he's the first five-star recruit in, in, in uh, a significant amount of time to to uh, to sign with a uh, HBCU. Uh, my concern is, well, if you have if he had the right the ability to to monetize um, his uh, his uh, NIL, he'd make a lot more money, you know, going to a Kentucky than a Howard. And to what to what what be the impact of that being added to the decision equation? Maybe he doesn't go to Howard. So at some point, there's got to be some discussion of of those you know, unintended consequences and, and what can we do to protect uh, smaller schools. Not to say there, there won't be NIL opportunities at historically black colleges, but I think there will be. Uh, for example, I think assigned McCor, Maker, Howard University, Jersey, you know, would, could probably fetch a pretty pretty penny, right, uh, if he signed a deal with, what's the, what's the, what's, what's the, what's the company in uh, New York is it, uh, that uh, sells the merchandise, the collectibles? Fanatics. Maddox or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or God, he's a, he, has, he has white hair. He's always interviewing these guys. Oh, uh, Steiner, Steiner? Steiner, Steiner Sports. Yeah. Yes, Steiner yeah. Sports. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, you know, maybe that can be an opportunity, but uh, I, I just think that sometimes, sometimes the impact that these new kind of proposals and initiatives could have on, you know, limited resource institutions we're not part of those discussions, so these issues aren't really raised as maybe seriously as they should be. Yeah, and I guess for now, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's state by state. It's obviously not a federal policy. So as the states potentially adopt these one by one by one, I, I suppose, Greg, it brings up some recruiting concerns. So, for example, you, there are multiple states represented in your conference uh, theoretically, if one were to have NIL and a high-profile athlete was making a decision between two of those schools in different states, I mean, tell me, if, is it crazy to think that they, that might influence the decision? Um, probably not, because, you know, I, I read on Politico that the Power Five leagues have retained, uh, you know, I forgot the name of the firm, but a prominent K Street lobbyist mm -hmm. to work with Congress uh, about shaping a federal law mm -hmm. that would obviously preempt uh, state law. And I think that's kind of where we're going to end up. We'll probably end up with, uh, you know, some type of uh, congressional um, federal rules that are going to, you know, synchronize all of the uh, states and put them on the level playing field. I, that's probably where we're going to end up. Well, like, I, think, I believe that. Yeah. And I believe that, that's yeah. the posture of the NCAA, too. Uh, they're, they're basically... I think pushing for uh, you know, uniform federal legislation as opposed to your earlier point, state by state, kind of a patchwork of different solutions. Right. But, but as a practical matter, right now, for example, I think California, I believe, is on track for it to be. Florida will be first. Florida will be first. Oh, Florida's first. I thought California was first. Okay. So, yeah. Joe, do you know what date that kicks in? It's July. No, California, California was the first to pass the law. Okay. They were the first. Right, but so, but but so, all of these all of these states they 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 don't kick in the effective dates of these statutes. I've not seen one that has an effective date that's you know you know closer than three years away. Okay, that's that's where I was so, going. So with that. so yeah. so my so my interpretation of these states these statutes that that have been passed, I think sixteen or seventeen states have might have passed um, 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 legislation. It, it, it more. My sense is that they did this to kind of spur on the NCAA to gently kind of nudge them in this direction. Mm -hmm. And I think it's had the effect that the desired effect, I think it's, you know, kind of, you know, led to, you know, serious discussion. I know the, uh, the NCAA, you know, uh, created an ad hoc committee of uh, people to study the issue. And I believe there, you know, they've introduced some rules and guidelines. So uh, I think that was really the effect of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting to see where this is going to go because it, it just seems like with the challenges in 
American politics right now. Uh, the thought of this getting getting into the system and getting out of the system in a in a decent amount of time seems far fetched, at least to me. Uh, so I'm I'm, I'm conflicted. Yeah. The short answer: I'm conflicted. Yeah. In the abstract, I support student athletes to be able to, you know, monetize their their NIL um, rights. Similar to the way you know Olympians, you know, who were once prohibited from doing endorsement deals because they lose their amateur status, the name you know they 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 kind of deregulated that 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 posture. I'm 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 in the abstract in favor of that, but as a commissioner of a historically black conference with limited resource institutions, I'm concerned about the impact that could have and the possibility of disadvantaging schools that who lack of large media rights um, mm -hmm. relationships could, yeah, could exactly. disadvantage them from in terms, of, in terms of being able to offer kids those ability to monetize their rights. So Greg, um, transitioning into the, the two most pertinent issues of today, um, interested in hearing, uh, as the commissioner of an HBCU conference, um, how you've been dealing with coaches, athletes, alumni, with regard to Black Lives Matter, and then on top of that, the, take us through a little bit of the tough decision that you had to make, or was it a tough decision, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, where you decided not to play in the fall and, and kind of how those two things have either played parallel to each other or have made for some sleepless nights for you and your staff? Well, this is an incredibly challenging time because, you know, at the, at the beginning of this conversation, Joe, I talked about some of the financial challenges that we had to, uh, you know, deal with. And at the time, you know, I felt that, that you know, those challenges were, were, were quite daunting but compared to the current environment, you know, they just, you know, those challenges pale in comparison. Um, I mean, COVID, I mean, it, 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 the impact obviously has not just simply been confined to, you know, intercollegiate sports and sports in general, but it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, the higher education model, right? In terms of bringing kids on campus and having to live in dorms. And so this is, this is quite challenging and, and, and we've been feeling our way through that particular issue like everyone else. I think when it comes to the decision uh, of our presidents and chancellors to, uh, to uh, cancel sports, you know, they were just guided by the data and the science. I mean, when you looked at where things were going, um, it, to me, it was, I think it was difficult for our presidents to, on the one hand, ask kids, particularly student athletes who play football, to report to camp in an environment where the infection rates are exploding, particularly in the Southeast, right? Or on the other, ask them to report to camp in an environment where states are beginning to reclose the, 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 the state. Mm -hmm. So in defiance of maybe stay-at-home orders. Or, either way, it, it just sends uh, a very uh, complicated message to student-athletes and their parents with respect to, you know, the sincerity that you have about their welfare. So I, I just felt that. And then when you look at Dr. Fauci, who, you know, I know he's having some challenges in Washington, but I think most Americans would, would, would probably surmise that he's been the most um, transparent and incredible guy on this issue. I mean, his testimony in front of the Congress has been very telling. I mean, uh, what struck a lot of our board members was his testimony about a second wave. Mm -hmm. He said that, hey, you know, a second wave is not inevitable if, you know, as a country, we do the right things during the summer. Well, obviously, you know, not only are we not doing the right things, we're doing the opposite of the right things. Every, that every other country, particularly in Asia and Europe and Canada, seems to have been able to do to flatten the trajectories of infection. So we're not doing that. So that, to me, I interpret that to mean that perhaps a second wave is going to be inevitable, which, which is, if history is a guide, that can be even more brutal than the first wave. The second thing he said is that, you know, he testified earlier, so at least almost a month ago, that, you know, I don't really see football taking place in the fall. If they were to do it, he suggested that uh, they consider incorporating some of the elements that he saw uh, involved with the NBA and Major League Baseball uh, proposals that involved a bubble. As you, Tom, and Joe know, you can't 
put college kids in a bubble for four months. That's just not practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have classes to go to, so that's just not practical. So again, the data, the infection trajectories, where our schools are located, uh, it just made it, it just it, it just made it almost impossible. There was no path that I think our board saw for moving forward. And you know, I, I give them a lot of credit because it, it it takes a lot of courage to be first, and and particularly with our schools, football is is very important to you know their alumni, their stakeholders, and their student athletes. So I gotta applaud those presidents for making those making that call. But you know, they're being vindicated because. You know, you're now seeing more and more, you know, leagues and schools follow suit as the uh, as the evidence begins to, uh, you know, uh, mount against you know the, the, the feasibility of playing football in the fall. Yeah, I'll just add one thing, Joe, before your question, and and that is, when you say guided by the data and science, science and data, that obviously makes sense. You're looking at one dramatic example that involves you guys, the state of Georgia, where you have a governor in stark opposition, for example, to the Atlanta mayor, et cetera, basically effectively ignoring science and data. And uh, just just one final thought from you on, on that. When you're trying to operate effectively in environments where some of your positions may be counter to what you're hearing from the government. Well, you know, the, the supermajority of our schools are uh, private institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, Morehouse College was the first to kind of announce they're their private institutions. So, you know, one of the benefits of that is that we don't really, it gives us the luxury of not being too concerned about the politics of it. Mm-hmm. And it gives these schools a certain amount of autonomy. Um, but, you know, you know, we, we obviously, you know, College campuses, by definition, are political environment, so you always got to kind of be at least aware of it. But I'm not sure, you know, the, the political dynamics around the swirling around these schools uh, with respect to COVID. I'm not sure that was really, a, you know, a consideration on the part of our board members that they're going to be first and foremost driven by the science and the data, and then, you know, driven also by an overarching desire to protect the kids and student athletes politics didn't really enter into the equation. So, so moving on uh, to your other difficult decisions. And in, and in fairness to the governor of Georgia, you know, we have a couple, few state schools in, in Georgia. You know, um, you know, those presidents have been given autonomy to make those decisions in with respect to, you know, um, what they feel is in the best interest of their students. So, uh, as far as I can see, I don't, I don't see any, you know, I don't see any backlash or any interference by the state of Georgia with respect to the schools that are state schools like Savannah State, Albany State, and Fort Valley State University. So, so the other obviously very difficult topic that, that you're all dealing with, and your schools, I'm sure, are dealing with in various ways, um, is everything that has happened from George Floyd on. Uh, and way back before that, being uh, associated with schools in the South and living in Atlanta. Um, can you just give us a couple minutes, Greg, on, on when everything has played out, how it has played out across your schools, um, the things you're most proud of, the things that have surprised you from, especially from the student athletes uh, and the administrations uh, with the schools, the HBCU schools that you deal with? Well, as it relates to George Floyd, um, I still haven't watched the video. Uh, I can't bring myself to watch it. Um, it, it I, I know exactly what happened. It's been, it's been explained to me in graphic detail by people who, you know, friends and family who have watched it. But it's just something that uh, I, I couldn't, I've yet to be able to bring myself to watch it. Um, the the thing I'm most proud of is probably the the response of our kids and our student athletes. I mean, our students and kids on you know at our schools. I, mean, I live in downtown Atlanta, and for a period of time, you know, these kids were very engaged and 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 mostly engaged in peaceful, um, you know, civil you know disobedience. Um, I was very impressed with their level of activism and uh, their uh, willingness to get engaged because to me, 
when you look at the store people at colleges, <clears throat> you know, it's their the the willingness of kids to 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 protest and engage in civil dis- disobedience. This is this this dates back way before George Floyd. I mean, you're looking at I mean, listen, Clark Atlanta and Morehouse, the street that they're they both are on, it's called Student Movement Drive. Uh, Miles College kids were uh, were critical to the uh, uh, civil rights um, protest in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, you know, uh, in the, in Greensboro, in the city throughout the South, in Nashville, kids from Fisk and A and T and NC Central. So, you know, what you're seeing with respect to George Floyd has been is is is, is very much consistent with the, you know, tradition of historically black colleges to be out there agitating for positive social change. Even during the 80s, you know, I was in the 1980s, historically black colleges were very, very active in the anti-apartheid movement and, 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 and seeking divestiture from South Africa and supporting Nelson Mandela. So to me, George Floyd is part of a, uh, a century-long unbroken chain of activism on the part of, you know, HBCU stakeholders to really, you know, try to be the conscience of the country on a lot of these issues. So I'm probably most proud of the fact that these young men, women are keeping faith with that tradition. Um, um, So that's, and also I think on respect to the SIC, you know, we've been, you know, in a sports context in particular, you know, we've really been about, you know, providing opportunity and access. You know, we are the first league to provide, you know, uh, women, you know, uh, opportunities to officiate college football games. First league, black, white, polka dot to do that with national news. You know, our partnership with Michelle Roberts and the NBA Players Association has led to employment opportunities for former NBA players like Daryl Walker and Kenny Anderson at Fisk and George Lynch and uh, and Lindsey Hunter at Mississippi Valley. And, uh, Mo Williams just got out of the state. I mean, we wanted to address a situation where a lot of these guys who didn't attend HBCUs but attended schools that generated a lot of revenue, they weren't being given coaching opportunities when their when their careers were done. So. You know, we are at the forefront again with in partnership with the NBA Players Association uh, to try to create opportunities along those lines. We just got a million dollar grant from First Point Volleyball Foundation, and their CEO Wade Gerard and and their chairman of the board, uh, um, um, coach um, 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 of the Olympic team, uh, to help get more African Americans playing boys volleyball. You know, Coach Barral, who head coach of UCLA, he's chairman of the board of First Point. So I, I say that to say what I think is the silver lining of this George Floyd episode is that it's now moved this conversation into the mainstream. And, you know, this is a conversation we've been participants in, you know, since I've been at the SIEC and not just participants, but we've been in the avant-garde in many respects. So I think it helps, you know, to bring more awareness to some of the things we've already been working on. And most recently, you know, Coach John Calipari at Kentucky has uh, reached out to us and and is working with us to try to even amplify even more, you know, and expand uh, opportunities for people of color to not just get become basketball coaches, but become administrators and athletic directors and senior women administrators. So, again, I think that the silver lining in all of this is that it, 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 it's, uh, it, 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 it brought more people to the conversation. And I think that that's going to, you know, perhaps uh, enhance the, the chances of real progress being made the more people you have talking about these issues and actually doing something in response to you know some of the challenges that 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 uh, that uh, are related to uh, inequality and lack of access. Greg, with with the cancellation of the fall sports season, um, in effect, many of the athletes are losing their platform 
for sharing their opinions and their stories and stuff like that. Is, is there some, something they can be doing or in your opinion should be doing during their own sport hiatus since they will be low profile for the next at least um, five or six months to the extent they want well, to be, be more, more involved? Well, you know, these kids are, you know, their platform to some degree, particularly at smaller schools, is going to be social media, mm -hmm. right? Because they're not on ESPN, you know, every, every Saturday or every night during basketball season. So, you know, by virtue of being student athletes, um, it, it, it puts them in a position of leadership on their campuses. And these young people, you know, when they congregate, uh, they, they, they congregate on social media, media platforms, you know, like Snapchat, and, you know, Twitter, and I guess now TikTok is emerging as a popular, you know, met platform for young kids. So I think they'll continue to, you know, be a very important voice in connection with the, you know, post-George Floyd conversations we just referenced. But I think on a more practical level, uh, I, you know, it's my hope that these kids take advantage of this opportunity in the fall to really buckle down on their academics. Because when you are a student athlete, uh, you know, it, it's really a job, you know, in terms of, you know, study hall and, and, and voluntary, quote unquote, involuntary, you know, practices and workout and et cetera, traveling on the road, being away, being out of, being away from campus, this class time. So it, it, you know, being an athlete doesn't lend itself to taking the full load and, and really, you know, devoting probably the optimal amount of time to academics that you probably should to, to be as successful as you could be. So I would think, I'm hoping again, silver lining, that during this, uh, this hiatus, uh, assuming we come back and play football in the spring, can be used and leveraged by student athletes to load up on as many classes as you can, take the challenging classes that you you might not have time to take before, and and maybe it can be you know be an opportunity for kids to you know close the gap in terms of you know getting back on track for those kids that aren't on track to graduate, get them back on track from a from a course credit standpoint. So well, I think those would be opportunities. Point. That's a great point. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about it, and I hadn't heard anybody else bring up. That's one interesting point. Um, I'm hoping they take advantage of it, Joe. Yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed. But um, yep. Greg, in the couple minutes that we have left, uh, we like to ask everybody two questions. One is, how do you stay up to date with everything that's going on, especially in the world we're in right now and all the issues that you have to deal with? And then you deal with so many young people, student athletes, um, coaches, administrators, band members. Um, what's the what's the advice that you give them as they either start careers or now probably have to reinvent some of their careers? Well, my my answer to the first is going to be my partial answer, Joe. To the second, um, I think you should read everything. I've always been a reader, as I mentioned from the outset. You know, my mom is a, was an avid reader. Um, you know, she's I mean, she's always been reading. As a small child, she's still alive. She you know she she more of a reader than anything. So I kind of picked that up from my my mom and dad, particularly my mother. So I, I'm, I'm insatiably curious in, both about things related to sports and, and unrelated to sports. And sometimes you'll find the things that you think are unrelated to sports, you can, you can, you can extract some ideas that you can apply to sports. But I read everything, you know, I read, uh, you know, obviously all the stuff, you know, college sports periodicals, but I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the Financial Times. I subscribe and I force my staff to subscribe to the Sports Business Journal. Um, you know, we subscribe to Advertising Age. I mean, I, I try to read, I read white papers, Harvard white papers on different subjects. So I think reading and trying to just figure out how people are thinking about things and different ideas and how they and how they approach problems, I think that's, I think that's critical. Uh, uh, and, and I would say when it comes to young people, I mean, I'll just, I'll share an anecdote. I got a chance to visit with David Stern, uh, you know, uh, last year. And I went to his office and he had like all these papers on his desk. And he read, I mean, he read 
like eight or nine papers a day and a bunch of trade, you know, sports trade periodicals. But, you know, I, I'd like to think that that probably had something to do with him being such a visionary, visionary and having so many, you know, different ideas. He, he seemed to be someone who had a voracious intellectual curiosity and that manifested in just reading about things that were both sports and non-sports related. Um, which I, I would imagine that probably has something to do, Joe and Tom, with him being the first to be in, you know, international and recognizing mm-hmm. opportunities in China. He probably read that something on some white paper about the Chinese economy or something. But so I just think reading, I can't overstate the importance of just reading and, and trying to uh, expose yourself to as many different ideas as you can. And, and perhaps, you know, a couple of them um, can help make a difference in your professional life. As far as kids, to me, it's just a matter of, you know, getting in the game, right? I think some of these kids, you know, they want to work in sports, and they need to, at the very beginning, not be so much concerned about making money. Uh, If you want to work in sports, to me, it's all about, you know, getting the opportunity to show what you can do. And that may even include volunteering, you know? So I, I think what most disappoints me sometimes when you meet people who are, you know, millennials or generation Z, unless you're paying them money, you know, they don't really want to get involved. And I remind them that there's a lot of people who got this start working for free waiting tables during the day or night, but working for nothing. And then, you know, they show the people what they can do. The old adage, good people are hard to find. And almost invariably when you find someone who's talented and hardworking and smart, you know, they're not going to let you go. They're going to find a way to keep you. So I would just tell kids, just, you know, find a way to, you know, to, 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 to get into the game any way you can, even if it means working for nothing. Be the first one there, the last one to leave. Make yourself useful, and you'll be amazed at how quickly people will find the salary for you because, you know, good people are, in fact, hard to find. The other thing I would say is, uh, I, when I taught at Georgia State Sports Masters program, I used to have a test question. I'd say, if you had a chance to work for the Marlins or the Yankees, what job would you take? And a lot of kids would say the Yankees. And I say that's the wrong answer. You probably <laughs> want to work for the Marlins. If you work for the Yankees, they're going to say, hey, we had what, 28, 30 World Series. We're, you know, four or five billion dollar organization. You know, we have a Yankee way of doing things that's worked pretty well. So they're going to plug you into a cog in this gigantic machine and tell you this is what you can do. If you work for an organization that's not as esteemed, they're going to be a little more desperate for ideas. And they're going to give you a lot more freedom to try things. And you're going to be able to work in a lot more areas because they're, they're, they're actually searching for solutions. Um, and, I, and my point is that you'll learn a lot more working for a smaller organization maybe a minor league baseball team than you would working for one of the more glamorous, um, uh, well-known franchises and sports organizations that sometimes attract, you know, the most attention. Um, so I think, again, minor league baseball is a perfect example. You know, you'll work in ticketing, you'll do sponsorship, you'll, heck, they may have you out there paying the lines one day. I mean, you're, you're going to get it, but you'll get a chance to learn the business. And, I, and, I, and, I'll, and, I, and I'll, I'll just add that, when you work at William Morris, you guys know this, they start you in the mailroom. When you go work at Nike Corporate, I don't care if you went to Harvard Business School, they put you in the retail floor. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for learning the business from the ground up. And I think a lot of kids don't necessarily have a full appreciation of that reality. All right, Joe, before we wrap, can I do a quick follow-on to that question? I was just going to say, Tom, I'm sure you have one more question. I, I can't resist uh, because you, you sound like a serious reader. Uh, Greg, is there anything specific in the way of nonfiction, either business books or life books that you've read recently or are currently reading that you'd want to point out? I would point out the, uh, I'm a big fan of the Gladwell books. Mm-hmm. Okay. From the Tipping Point, Outliers, um, those two in particular are books that I think uh, are important. Um Outliers from the standpoint of, it, it, to me, if you're a young person reading that book, I think that book deconstructs the mystique of success. 
and it challenges conventional wisdom about what it takes to be successful. I mean, yeah, they talk, you know they talk about ten thousand hours and ten years, but it 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 it, it at, at the end of the day, it tells to me the message, the takeaway from the book is that everyone has access, has the option to be successful if you're willing to put in the time and pay the price. So I think there's a lot of people out here who think, well, if I just knew the right people, or you know, it's not who you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, and Hey man, at the end of the day, the biggest variable that's going to determine whether or not you're successful is how hard you work. And I think the book Outliers, you know, does a good job of just distilling that truth by using a you know a host of different uh, anecdotes um, to, to to illustrate that point. Um, tipping point, I think it's important. Oh, and David and Goliath, uh, another okay, great right. book. Mm-hmm. How the notion of how disadvantages can be advantages. I think that's a brilliant, it's a brilliant kind of way to look at a problem because to me, I think no matter what organization or what situation you find yourself in, uh, there's always, there's, there's, there's a card to play. And I think the best example of that probably in a, in a geopolitical sense would be uh, a guy who I've created uh, an admiration for, the former prime minister of Singapore, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Here's a guy who took over a country, right, that had about 3 million people, no natural resources, third world country, dirt poor, uh, no military strength at all, and, uh, you know, none of the advantages that you would associate with a country, country that can become a first world economic power. But he had one card to play, uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, uh, the Prime Minister had, which, you know what? He kind of saw that we, we, we are in close proximity to China, and he saw that China is, is emerging as an economic power, as a gigantic market that the U.S. is going to want to have to want to access. And you know what? We can be kind of the bedroom community for China, and that's exactly what happened. So for all these corporations that are now doing business and manufacturing in China, they may have the factories in China. But they have the uh, they have their office operations in Singapore. So he did a few things. He made the country he made the he, he made the national language English to attract English speaking uh, companies. He uh, it was usually uh, uh, Singapore had been a country that was uh, you know, had major it was one of those uh, narco economies. He peaked, as you guys know Singapore has the most dr- draconian criminal justice code in the world. There's some there's some human rights concerns that folks have expressed, but what it did do is it eradicated crime. They almost have a zero crime rate, uh, and uh, there's no corruption. Uh, he pays his ministers and people in the Singapore government very high salaries to avoid or mitigate the risk of corruption, and that attracted foreign investment. Now Singapore is one of the top 10 or 15 richest countries in the world. So to me, when you look at back to Malcolm Gladwell. When you look at a country like Singapore, like, well, how did you become so wealthy? Hey, man, they, they had one card to play. And they leveraged, you know, a bunch of, uh, they were able to mitigate a bunch of disadvantages perceived and uh, monetize that event, their geographical proximity to China. Outstanding. Uh, and then just this, the last one, Joe, that I, I had, and this could, Greg, be short answer because I know we're out of time. Are there any, you've mentioned David Stern a number of times. We're, we're all big fans of David Stern. He's been, he was so influential, arguably, maybe not even arguably, the most influential leader in sports in, in our lifetime to date. Um, beyond David Stern, are there any leaders in the business now, the writ large, the sports business writ large, leaders or organizations that you look to for inspiration or, or good example setting? I'm inspired by uh, Michelle Roberts. Executive Director of the NBPA, mm-hmm. um, and I say that because she's probably the best, smartest union leader that league has ever had. And when you look at the previous collective bargaining um, sessions between the players and the owners, there's no delicate way to say it. Um, you know, with all due respect to Billy Hunter and 
and, and his predecessors. I, you know, I think David Stern probably got the better of them. Um, but uh, to me, I have a lot of respect for her because not only is she, a, you know, the first woman to lead a major union, but you know, she's, uh, you know, come, came from outside the sports world. I think she was a partner at Chad Larbs. And, and to me, she's one of the first union leaders that could intellectually match the other side at the bargaining table. Mm-hmm. I think baseball, for example, they probably had the advantage, right? Marvin Miller was probably smarter than the owners he was negotiating with. And I'm sure mm-hmm. Donald Fear was probably smarter than most of the owners. So I respect her because this is probably the first time that the NBA Players Association has had someone uh, leading their union with this, with at least as much and perhaps more intellectual firepower than the owners that she's negotiating with. Well, I don't think we covered enough topics, Tom. <laughs> Rapid fire uh, topic cover. No, it was really hey, great. Uh, Greg, before we let you go, where can people find you and where should they, they follow the conference? Where, what are the, the two best places? Well, I'm not Joe big on social media, man. I mean, my staff kills me about it. And I probably should be a little more engaged, but I, I just, I just, I'm not a social media guy. At some point, I got to bite the bullet, I guess. But, you know, if you visit www.vthsiac.com, you can learn more about our league and our schools. And, uh, you know, at some point, you know, Joe, I need to talk to you and maybe hire your firm to give me some social media, you know, expertise. My firm. I'm going to go get my firm from outside. Yeah. The firm's on vacation this summer. (laughs) But I also also have great regard for Joe. I'm not just saying this because he's here. You know, I read what he writes about. He has Mm -hmm. his finger on the pulse of what's going on. Uh, I'm I'm really impressed at how attentive Joe is to just the the, the tea leaves of where sports is. And uh, I do read his writing. So, He's a guy who I have a lot of uh, you know respect for as well, and what he's done, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure, and I'm sure that's shared by a lot of other folks I've bumped into in the sports world. They share that opinion about Joe. Yeah, Joe, what's your newsletter up to? You know, seventy nine thousand or something like that. Somehow I just I had this rush on Twitter today. Somehow I have like over seventeen thousand, eighteen thousand followers on Twitter all of a sudden. What are you, are, you, are, you, are you investing in are you investing in new followers now? Is this well, a no, new I'm strategy? actually probably investing in Bitcoin. Jeff Bezos says I was a good player. Okay. All right. You got you got but, hacked in a good way. <laughs> anyway. But you can't you can't you can't learn what Joe knows. Joe, you know, he's a Jersey guy like me, but when you when you talk to Joe, you realize that a lot of it's just instinct. And you either have it or you don't. He just has an instinct. And uh and it's those instincts that I think uh, people are willing to, uh, you know, pay a pretty penny for for his insights. I need, I need other things actually. So anyway, well, Greg, um, was that a paid ad, Joe? By the way, or are we getting? No, it, should if, we send the honest, invoice? If, 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 if the honest to goodness truth, oh, I know I mean, that was very yeah. nice of you to say that. We're all in agreement with that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's appreciated. Uh, so Greg, on behalf of Joe, I say that. Greg, thanks for joining us. Tom, you want to kind of take us home here and. Uh, yeah, guys, we've been even having the privilege of listening to Greg Moore, who, what an interesting guy, what an interesting job he has, what an interesting perspective. So thank you, Greg, for, for uh, sharing all that with us and our audience. Uh, we'd love to have you visit Columbia sometime when you're able to travel and you're able to hang out on a campus and in a classroom. So consider that an open invitation. Um, Great. It'd be awesome to have, to have you there. Uh, hopefully sooner than later. But um, thank you again on behalf of Columbia. Thank you on behalf of our producer, Tom Cerny. Nice job, Tom, keeping this going every week. Appreciate that. And um, we appreciate everybody listening. If anybody has any feedback on anything we've been talking about, any topics you'd like us to cover, any guests you'd want to recommend, we don't say this very often, but we're we're very accessible at Joe Fav on Twitter. Uh, at Convergence TR for me, we'll do, we, as they say, leave the DMs open. Uh, But seriously, reach out if you'd like to. But uh, most important, thanks for listening and stay safe. We'll see you next time.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.